As I said earlier in the service, I was gone over the weekend to Camp Altamans with our confirmation class. We've been meeting every Sunday for a couple months now in between the services during the Sunday school hour with our confirmation class, trying to help them discern more about who God is and, and whose they are in relation to God. In Methodist speak, we, we baptize anyone, but primarily we baptize a lot of infants uh, because that's just part of our theological heritage. But we also have confirmation later in life if you've been baptized as an infant. And that's because baptism is God's way of saying yes to us, and confirmation is our way of saying yes back to God. And so we've been gathering with these, these middle schoolers for a couple months now, and they've been learning more about the Spirit and more about uh, church and the history of Methodism and, and all this sort of stuff. And so we go to Camp Altamans this weekend, and Eric Anderson, the director of Next Generation Ministries, and I, we're, we're trying to help uh, make the most of our time while we're there because we want to have fun, but we also want to be faithful. Uh, and so we, we had a big campfire on Friday night and got to see the stars, and it was beautiful, and we got to sing some worship songs outside. It was really special. We, we hiked up to the falls, but we also spent a lot of time in study. And one of the things that we discerned and kind of decided we were going to do was we wanted to see if these kids could tell us the story of the Bible. We wanted to see not, not just us trying to convey it to them, but if they could convey it to us. So we broke them into three groups. One of them had Old Testament Part 1, another group had Old Testament Part 2, and then the third group had the New Testament. And we said, you've got 15 minutes, and you've got some big pieces of paper, and we want you to, to write down what is, how does the story start, where does it go, so that when we all come together, we'll tell the whole story of the Bible. Now, I have to tell you, the whole conceit of this was to show them that they don't know the Bible. That was kind of part of the idea, was to, to get them to try to do this so that when they came back, we could talk about how knowing Scripture is a lifelong endeavor. It's part of our discipleship. We always come back. To, we're never masters of the text. We're always servants of the Word. And so we broke them up into their groups, and they each were you know, flipping through their Bibles and writing things down and drawing pictures. And then when we came back, I, I sat down, and I kind of had this smug smile on my face because I thought, they are going to fail. I mean, how, how do you tell the Bible uh, with 15 minutes of work? And then they did it. They stood up, and each of the groups got to talk about the parts of the Scripture they, they knew. And they, they started, well, and then there was Jacob and Esau, and then after Jacob and Esau, there was Joseph, and there was the whole Egypt ordeal. And then, oh, gosh, don't forget about Moses. Thank God for Moses. I mean, they just kept going. I thought, who told you all of this stuff? Okay, we're going to get to the next part of the Old Testament. That's crazy. They're, oh, they're, well, there's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. I mean, the Valley of the Dry Bones and Ezekiel, oh, the Babylonian captivity. That must have been really tough for those 70 years. I thought, what has gone on? I know I have not preached on these stories. We had two years of a pandemic where these kids were not. How do they know? And we got to the New Testament. Can you believe Paul had to write those things to the church in Corinth? They weren't really listening to what God was doing. And then the Holy Spirit came down at Acts, and that's not even mentioning all the great stories Jesus said. I mean, they told all these parts of the Bible. And I, I kind of thought for a moment, like, how is this possible? How, how do these tweenagers know their scriptures? And then I realized the answer. It's because of you. It's because of the church. Revelation 21, verse 10, and then verse 23 through chapter 22, verse 5. This is our scripture for today. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has 
No need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord is its light. Its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into the glory the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It happens every so often that I have an inquiry from someone about baptism. A couple has a baby, and they call the church office, and they want to know if it's possible for their newborn infant to be baptized. A stranger stumbles into church on a Sunday morning, is moved by the music or the power of the Spirit, and approaches me afterward to, to ask if I might baptize them. A longtime church member sees somebody else being baptized in church and for the first time desires to receive the promise of the covenant made by water and the Spirit. And whenever I have these conversations, there's always a moment that comes, inevitably, where I ask the question as it pertains to bapti uh, baptism. Why? Why? Do you want to get baptized? Why do you want your baby to be baptized? One of my professors said that the most faithful churches are those who won't marry or baptize anyone off the street. That is, if a random couple wants to be married, it would be better for them to get married by the justice of the peace. Because the covenant of marriage, at least as we understand it in the church, is only possible within a community that will help hold the couple accountable to the promises that they make in their marriage. And the same holds true for baptism. So should you grow weary or bored in the next 10 to 15 minutes, you can look in the liturgies in the hymnal in front of you, and you'll discover that the questions and the promises of marriage and baptism are remarkably similar. And if flipping through the hymnals too hard, you can always use Google. What makes baptism and marriage so similar is the outward nature of a promise. It's that neither of them should be entered into lightly, and that they are only possible through a community that we call the church. A few years ago, I was serving a church that had a preschool, and I made it a point to hang out among the children and their families as much as was possible. I was at the door nearly every morning, welcoming them into the preschool. I led chapel time once a week in our sanctuary, and after a while, after being there and being present in their lives, I got a lot of birthday invitations to four-year-old birthday parties. It's a lot of fun getting those invitations when you're my age and you do what I do. I'm not sure how exactly it happened, but at some point while I was serving that church, we had three different families in the preschool who each had a pastor as a parent. So we had our own church preschool, but three of the preschool families had parents 
who are pastors. Let me tell you, teaching preschoolers about the Bible is hard enough, but it takes on a whole new dimension when those children return home week after week to tell their pastor parent what this pastor said about the Bible. Lots of questions and emails came forth during those years. Anyway, it came to pass that two of the brothers from the preschool asked one day if I would baptize them. And it so happened that their mother was also a United Methodist pastor serving on the other end of town. And so we talked with the boys together, and we decided that we would baptize them together. Their mother, who was a pastor, and their, their preschool pastor would also be there. They affectionately referred to me as Pastor Pizza Head. When you're three, that works. I'll take it. So it happened on a, uh, on a cold May day. Now, we weren't going to have this be an ordinary baptism. It wasn't going to happen uh, with a little few drops of water in a sanctuary on a Sunday morning. It was not even going to happen in the chapel that we used for the preschool. They wanted to be baptized in living water. They wanted to be baptized in a creek or a river or a lake or an ocean. They wanted to be in living water. And we said, that's fine, but it was early May. It was a little cold, and the only place we could find that was close enough for everybody was, I kid you not, a place called Whiskey Creek in Churchville, Virginia. So on a cold May day, we gathered at Whiskey Creek with these two little boys to have them baptized. Now, I knew well enough to bring my fishing waders with me, so I was wearing my clergy collar and a stole, but I had waders up to my belly button because I knew it was going to be cold and we were going to have to get in that water. So we were there, and we said all the things that we normally say in baptism. I prayed with the boys at the creek's edge, and because it was so cold, I literally had to pick the younger one up, carry him into the middle of the creek, because I was afraid that if he touched the water, it wasn't going to happen. So I'm carrying this man-child out into the middle of Whiskey Creek where his mother is waiting, and we grabbed him together, and we had agreed we were going to make this really quick. So we held his nose, and very quick we threw him under the water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we pulled him up. And when we pulled him up on that third time, he took this giant breath of air, and he screamed bloody murder. His face was wet from the river, from the creek, but I could see the tears streaming down his face. He took his hand and he smacked me across the face. And he yelled for everyone to hear, I hate you, Pastor Taylor. And then I had to carry him to the shore and get his brother and do the same thing to him. John the Revelator sees things that we cannot see, at least not yet. He has the vantage point of a high and holy mountain. He takes in the new Jerusalem. It is the great rectification of all things. God is making all things new. And oddly enough, in his vision, there's no church in the city. There's no temple. There's no place of worship. I mean, how can it be that when God comes to dwell among us, there's no place like this to gather? Well, it's because God is the temple. God becomes the church. It says that there's no darkness because God is the light. There's no gate because God is the host. Though John sees that nothing unclean will enter this holiest of places, and neither will those who practice abomination or falsehood. And there, in the center of it all, is the river of the water of life. It flows as bright as a crystal. It comes from the throne of the Lamb and the throne of God. And this water, and more importantly, from whom the water flows, makes all things new. It makes all things holy, makes all things clean. 
There's long been this understanding of, of John's vision as what we call prophecy. That is, it tells us about something that's going to happen in the future. So Christian types, perhaps someone like me, will hold these images over the heads of our sleepy and dozing congregations, and we will point to all these connective images in our culture. We'll say, oh, did you hear that there are 12 trees? Do you see that there are these, these 12 cities that are no longer being faithful to the Lord? It's all this kind of stuff. The, 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 the world is going to end on December 12, 2022. It, it's, it's that kind of stuff. They do this because it's a warning. They offer it as a warning about getting clean for the king, the need to repent in dust and ashes, so that when the time comes, people like you will do what is necessary to make it through the gate. And all of that might be right. But if that's all there is, then we're in big, big trouble. And I mean big, big trouble. Because none of us will make the cut. John says that abomination and falsehood cannot dwell in this place. Abomination, it sounds like a big and scary thing, but all of us practice abomination on a regular basis. Abomination is anything that causes distrust or hatred. Have you watched the nightly news recently? All of us participate in abomination. We live in a world that runs on distrust and hatred. We are defined so often not by what we love, but by what we hate. And that's not even mentioning falsehoods. No one makes it through this life without telling a lie. Not one person. So if this is all there is, then the new heaven and the new Jerusalem is going to be very empty. You see, for as much as this is about something that will come to pass, it is also at the same time very much a description of what is happening right now. Revelation is a timeless book, not because we can return to it again and again, time after time, but because it rejects all notions of temporal categories. It is outside of time. It is beyond time. Revelation is something that has happened, that is happening, and that will happen. But for creaturely creatures like ourselves, we can scarcely wrap our heads around something that is outside of time. But John sees something. See, something that speaks about who we are right now, who we were in the past, and who we will be in the future. And what does John see? The river of the water of life. Water runs through the strange new world of the Bible. In the beginning, God swept across the waters and brought forth order out of chaos. In the days of Noah, God set forth a rainbow in the sky. When God saw God's people as slaves in Egypt, God led them to freedom through the sea, eventually through the Jordan to the land that was promised. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus, nurtured in the water of a womb, was baptized in the John, or by, by John in the river Jordan. God, God in Christ called all of his disciples to share in his baptism of death and resurrection, to spread the good news to all who will hear it. The water... The water that flows through the middle of the city in John's vision is the water through which we are delivered to a strange new land where unclean and unholy people like you and me become clean and become holy. John says nothing unclean can enter the city and we can't make ourselves clean. No amount of goodness, no down on our knees prayers of repentance, no righteous acts of piety or mercy can wash away our sins because the old hymn is right. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
And because that is true, I can understand the hatred that came from that boy I baptized in Whiskey Creek. To me, made clean implies there is a need to be made clean, and no one likes to admit that there is something wrong with them. No one likes to admit that they're dirty, that they're sinful, that they're unholy. Moreover, baptism is the uh, the beginning of a journey of discipleship, and following Jesus isn't easy. I mean, look who God has decided to call God's friends. Us. And we're stuck with each other. Whether we like it or not, being a Christian is not easy. Coming to church, it's like the last vestige of a place where we willfully gather with people who don't agree with us. It happens at the grocery store, but you don't have to break bread with the people in the grocery store. Sometimes it happens at the ball field, but you don't have to pass the peace with the people at the ball field. But in church... We're stuck with each other. Now, would that boy who hated me at Whiskey Creek, would he be able to articulate such high-minded theological insights? Well, of course not. But his emotional response to the cold and frigid waters of his baptism is a truth that we often miss. Baptism really changes everything. We can't go back to who we were before we were baptized. No matter how hard we try, what's done is done is done. The blood of the Lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world, it flows forth from the throne and there, there's something that happens that can never be changed. It is the great cleansing flood that makes the impossible possible. Baptism is God's way of saying yes to us when God has no reason to say yes to, it all, to us at all. I myself, I was baptized when I was 19 days old. Little itty bitty baby. I think I've seen a picture of it one time. I was wearing a nice long white dress and it looks like someone has covered Vaseline all over the lens of the camera because it was 1988. <laughs> I had no choice in my baptism. It was done to me. But those who were gathered in that church 34 years ago took seriously the vows they made to raise me in the faith with God's help. So much so that I wound up going into the ministry. So let this be a warning to you. Beware of baptizing a child or a grandchild. You never know what God might call them to do. So when I was 25 years old and I had just finished seminary and was preparing to take my first appointment, my first church as a United Methodist clergy person, I was asked to return to my home church, that church that had baptized me all those years ago. And they said, before you become a clergy, we'd like you to preach one last time. I said, what a, what a great opportunity. I'd love to come home and preach one last time. So I took the vows of baptism as my, my sort of starting point for the sermon. With God's help, we will raise this child in the faith. And I spent the whole sermon conveying to my home church that they actually did it. They actually took those words seriously. They raised me in the faith that I knew the stories of Scripture. I knew the words of the hymns. I knew how to pray because they took it seriously. I wanted that last prayer before I became clergy to be a uh, last sermon to be a sermon of gratitude. And so after the service ended and I was standing in the narthex shaking hands with all these people I'd known my whole life, a woman named Judy Jerkowski came up to me. Judy Jerkowski graduated high school with my mother. She came up to me in the narthex and um, she had a Bible in her hand, a very, very well-worn Bible. And she stood there and she opened it up and inside on the first few pages of the Bible that are blank, uh, they weren't blank in her Bible. They were covered with names and dates. 
And I watched her index finger go down a line of a bunch of names in 1988 until she came to mine. And she said, you don't know this, but I have written down the name and the date of every child and every, every person I've been present for their baptism. And every single day, I wake up, I open up my Bible, and I pray for every single person by name. So she said, Taylor, you don't know. I've been praying for you for 25 years. I don't know why my parents had me baptized. I'm not sure they were ever asked, or even if they gave it much thought, but the conversation with Judy Jerkowski and the narthex of that church is a beginning of an answer to the question of why. The boys I baptized in Whiskey Creek, one of whom socked me in the face right after I did so, that moment started a journey for them, a journey that we call the adventure of faith. Each and every day, they're learning more about what it means to be loved by God and to love God. I got to talk to them on FaceTime a couple weeks ago. I think they've forgiven me now. Baptism is the radical re reorientation of all things. Every time that we bring someone to the font, every time we remember our baptisms, that the heavens are torn apart and God's spirit is made known to us in ways that we wouldn't have experienced otherwise. Baptism is radical. I mean, it really, really changes everything about who we are. It is the most determinative thing about who we are. We are first baptized Christians before we are anything else. The waters of baptism, they wash away any notion that we are going to be defined by our faults or our failures. Every drop of water, whether we're remembering our baptism or we're being baptized, it contains an ocean of grace and mercy and love deep and wide enough to engulf the entirety of everything that ever was, is, or will be. In baptism, we hear these words, You are my child. And we are who God says we are. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.